Good evening. Thank you, Daryl. I want to welcome any visitors who might be here. On Sunday night, we take a little faster pace, verse by verse. Take a chapter at a time. Sometimes we'll hit two. It depends. And um, we're in uh, Luke chapter 20, if you will. Luke chapter 20, Jesus has just cleansed the temple the day before on Monday. Now he is back teaching. He's at the end of his ministry. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He is committed as much now as he ever has been before. And... um, The very ones he came to die for, the very ones that he prepared to identify him, to recognize him, were the ones that failed to do so. As chapter 20 opens up, we have the authority of Jesus challenged. Matthew 21, 23 to 27 and Mark eleven twenty seven to 33 are the parallel passages. Chapter 20 has been called the day of questions. He's bombarded from one group to another. Chapter 20 really runs all the way to chapter 22. I believe, or 21 verse 4. 21 verse 4, that would be a better division. But again, sometimes the chapter and verse division, again, they're not anointed by the Spirit of God, but the the division would be a little better. But uh, such is the case here in chapter 20, verse 1 and 2, you have the occasion that is in the temple here. And now what happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple... And preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him. And he spoke to him saying, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? One of those days refers to the week of passion, the passion week. This is again um, he rode in on Palm Sunday. He came in on Monday to cleanse it. Now it's Tuesday. Jesus was teaching the believers, those who had trusted in him there in the temple. This was the area where many of the rabbis would teach and the lawyers and scribes and that. And, um, uh, but he's preaching also to the non-believer. Um, I basically am a teacher, but I always also preach to those that are non-believers in the crowd. I always turn everything around at the end. I never do a sermon without letting people have an opportunity to accept the gospel, accept Jesus Christ. Because I never know if that person, if that's the last time they're going to hear, or if the last, that's the last chance God will give them. I don't know. So my responsibility is to present the gospel and then offer the gospel for those who want to open their heart. And I leave it in God's hands. Nobody saves but the Lord. Jesus was confronted here by the members of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests of Sadducees, um, because the Sadducees were of the priestly uh, line. They controlled the temple and the, and the business there. The, the, the scribes um, 
um, were of, of, of the section of the Pharisees, the group, and the elders were just the rulers of the people. But they're all members of the Sanhedrin, like the Supreme Court, and they came here, they're religious rulers. And Jesus uh, uh, was given two questions, literally one, but from a different vantage point. He, uh, he tells us by, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Um, what group gave you the, the, the right to be able to do what, what you did? What governing office gave you this? In other words, the cleansing of the temple, because the temple belonged to the priestly, okay? And they had their own police and everything else, and, um, and he had turned over the money changers and, and, and drove out the, the uh, animals that were there to, to profit from the people. And who gave you this authority, the name of the person? Uh, because they were the ones in authority, and they were wanting to find out by who. This is a, a often asked question to Jesus in his ministry. Sometimes people will, will uh, when we first started in Calvary Chapels, as you know, um, none of them, very few of the people or the pastors had education, seminary training or anything. God just had saved people, and God began to anoint people and just call people to ministry. <laughs> And God um, used the foolish things of the world and he raised up pastors that uh, God has blessed. Um, I'm not against education. If you believe God's put you there, fine, get all you can. But once you get it, get over it. Um, But your education, your degrees doesn't qualify you to be a pastor. It's God who calls you and anoints you to be a pastor and a teacher. A man can give you a certificate, a diploma... But that doesn't mean you're called an anointed of God. That only means that you've gone through some courses and you have some knowledge, some information, and you can pump it out like a parrot. But it doesn't mean that God was going to use it or that God has called you. And many men and nowadays women have gone into ministry thinking that that um, the diploma is what really qualifies. And so when they, they, they come and they sit in your service or whatever, they'll say, uh, where did you go to school? Uh, what degrees do you have? I say, I have a BA. I'm born again. Um, each individual has to make a decision and only they can determine and decide whether God has called and anointed them. God helped the person who calls themselves and sets themselves up over people. If God has not called you, you will rule over people. You will abuse the people. That danger is even there when you're called and anointed if you get corrupted. How much more if you're not called or anointed? This is the history of the church. It happens every day today. It's happened in previous generations of the Lord tarries. It'll continue to happen. The response of Jesus comes in verse 3 and 4. He says, but he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing. And answer me. So, like Socrates, he answers with a question, okay? But far superior than Socrates. He, he turns it on them. The baptism of John. Was it from heaven or from men? Wow. Jesus literally reverses the question. And he's confronting them now. Put them on the defensive. And 
in effect, he's answering the question they asked him. If they give the honest answer, they should say from heaven. That would give them the proper answer and they knew it. But they reason among themselves in verse 5, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? So they're, they're, they're dialoguing here together on the site. You know, they went to the huddle. <laughs> well, what should we say? What's going on? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. It's a catch-22. So what do they do? So they answer, verse 7, that they did not know where it was from. They're dishonest. They're liars. They knew exactly where his authority was from. As I said this morning, John the Baptist was of the priestly line. He should have been in the temple. You remember Ezekiel? Ezekiel was also the priestly line. But God called them both out to be prophets. John the Baptist being the cousin of Jesus Christ. Six months older. The forerunner. The one crying in the wilderness. We've seen the first two chapters of Luke. It gives a whole history of it. No one else covers it. Luke does. And so they're being dishonest. And people will do that when they confront you certain things. And, and you give them truth. And they'll... They'll know what they should answer, but they just go, well, I, I, I really don't know. And so the natural man is real dishonest. Because pride gets him every time. Now, as Christians, we also have that danger. We are not beyond this. So we have to be as honest as we can. And sometimes people will say, well, what? I say, you know, I don't know. They go, you don't know? I said, no, I don't know. Does that shock you? I'll, I'll try to find out for you, but I don't know. So you don't want to make things up. You don't want to put a spin on something. <laughs> Be straight up with people. Whatever they ask you, uh, if you don't have the answer, say, you know, I really don't know. But, you know, let me, that's a good question. I, I've never thought about that. Let me see what the scripture has to say. I'll get back to you. We're to give an answer to every man for the reason that lies in us with meekness and fear. First Peter 3.15 says and we're to be uh, good students of the Word of God. And so we don't have all the answers. And sometimes we have to tell people, you know what? The Bible's silent on that. I don't know. We'll have to wait till we ask when we're with the Lord. Have no idea. Now, in verse 8, the answer of Jesus. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. <laughs> He would not answer them because they knew the answer was from heaven. John and Jesus were sent from the Father. Luke chapter 1, 2, 3, 4. Very, very clear. They knew it. In verse 9, down to 19, you have the parable of the wicked vine dressers. Now, that audience is still there. Okay? The Sanhedrin. He's addressing them. And here now Jesus, in verse 9, he says, Then he began to tell the people a parable. So he's dealt with them. Now he turns to the people, but they're still there. He's literally exposed them already, but now he's going to nail them. (laughs) 
He began to tell them a parable. Remember, a parable is from two words, para alongside and boldly to throw. You take something you do know, put it next to what you don't know, and in knowing what you do know, you'll know what you didn't know. That's what a parable is, okay? And so here he takes something very common of the day that everybody was real familiar with, and they, they would be able, and it has one punchline, one verse or two verses, but it's the punchline, and it has one central message, and parables either compare or contrast, okay? But it's very, very evident. Sometimes they're misinterpreted, and we've seen some of this, so we don't want to go over that again. But he says, A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Um, now, verse 9 gives us the setting here, um, and it's talking about um, these owners of vineyards uh, in the northern part of Galilee, uh, in other areas, but up there it would happen. And they would... Um, they would uh, lease their properties out, their vineyards, to those who would lease it on the contingency of receiving a share of the crop. And, and they would go away and, and, and live away from them. Then they would send uh, some of their servants that we see to to take up the um, the proceeds. Um, and so that's the setting. And in verse 10, it says, Now, at vintage time, he sent the servants to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And so the vineyard here is symbolic of Israel. It's not just a plain vineyard. Throughout the scriptures, you have the vineyard and the fig tree symbolic of Israel. This takes you back to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7, where God says, You know, I hedged you in, I watered you. What else could I have done? I expected a good group, good stock of grapes, but I found wild grapes. In other words, God is accusing Israel. I couldn't do anything more. What else could I have done? It's not my fault that you have sinned and walked away from me. Give that to Calvinists. Now, if God decrees everything, then he decreed they're going away from him. God says, no, I didn't. They chose to walk away from me. They chose to sin against me. This is the backdrop. They know it. Israel's my vineyard. I did everything. Provided, protected, directed. And as I blessed them, they just corrupted themselves. And so here, it's the leaders. They're in the backdrop. The servants that he sends, this first one, and the others that will follow are the prophets. The God has sent to the nation. Ezekiel, um, Hosea also speak of the vineyard and the fig tree. And again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. So, one by one. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also, and cast him out. Once again, the vine dressers are the leaders of Israel, the nation. The servants are the prophets of God. They, they, there should have been fruit, but there wasn't. You remember Amos the prophet was sent to the northern uh, kingdom. And they said, hey, get out of here. Don't prophesy here. He said, hey, wait, 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 wait. I didn't call myself. God, I was a, a seed picker, a fruit picker. And a sheep breeder. 
God called me. God sent me. When the priesthood and the leaders got corrupted, God called normal average people to become prophets, to call them back. It seems that when people are blessed of God at times and called of God and directed to be used of God, if they're not careful, they become corrupted through wealth or influence or whatever it may be. And then God has to go outside. And this happens in many denominations and movements. Then God has to go outside and start all over again and raise up common people to take the work. Again, there's nothing wrong with education, but education can just make you so smart that you do stupid things. You think you're in control. You think that you've got it together. That somehow you're the exception because you're such a blessing to God and His people. Hmm. Verse 13 to 16 gives us the ultimate attempt to collect the harvest. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. Wow. Jesus is talking about himself. He came to his own, his own received the not, John 1, 11. The word became flesh and we beheld his glory, John 1, 14. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God and God was the word, John 1, 1. I come in my father's name, you will not receive me, but I, there's one coming in his own name. Him you will receive, the Antichrist. Wow. Probably they'll respect him, he says. God sent forth the son made of a woman when the fullness of time had come right on time. And they missed him. But when the vine dressers, they saw him, they reasoned among themselves. See, it's always, you, 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 you get this word repeated, reason, they reason, they reason. They think they're smarter than God. Sometimes pastors and leaders or Christians become so clever, they think they're smarter than God. They try to grab and do things in the natural realm. They try to organize things and sanitize things rather than following God's lead. And when God blesses and, and, and does a great work, then they try to formulate it so this way they can sell books and they can be interviewed and they can give the secret away to everybody. And tell everybody how much they've sacrificed and what a blessing they are. And boy, it's just, it's a lie. Listen, when God blesses and the pastor is asked, how did you do it? There should only be one answer. I don't know. God did it. If you can explain the success of your ministry, then God didn't do it. You did it. You're a good organizer. You're a good beggar. You're charismatic. But when God does the work, 
you can't put a formula on it and you won't. And of course, as you can't put a formula, then people don't want to hear about it. Because the fact that God did it is just too simple. It's not exciting. It doesn't appeal to the flesh. Hmm. They reason among themselves saying, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. That the inheritance may be ours. So seeing the son come, they reason the owner must be dead. Let's kill him. And we're just squatters. We'll take over the property. It'll be ours. So verse 15 So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus is telling them what they're going to do to him. They're going to kill him. He's been saying this to his disciples from the confession of Caesarea Philippi up in Mount Hermon. They're at the foot of it. Walking towards his death under the shadow of the cross for six months. Now he's here, the last week. He's telling the Sanhedrin now what they're going to do to him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He brings judgment on them. Listen carefully. He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. In 70 AD, Titus the general of Rome would come with the 10th legion surround the city as we've discussed before level the temple kill the majority of the Jews and take away captives to sales the remainder judgment would come Jesus prophesied by Matthew 24 Mark 13 Luke 21 And he will give the vineyard over to others. Who's the others? The church age. Jew and Gentile, one in Christ Jesus. Jesus said in John 10, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in, they be one. Right now it's Israel, the nation. The age of grace is his bride. Israel is the wife who's been put away by divorce for unfaithfulness. The church is the virgin bride looking for a wedding. Jew and Gentile one. Do not believe replacement theology that God is through with Israel. God will deal with Israel once again. Romans 9, 10, and 11. Revelation 12. She will flee to the wilderness and God will protect her. The last three and a half years. And they will call upon the name of the Lord. Jesus said, you shall not see me henceforth. He say, blessed is you comes the name of the Lord. In Matthew 23, 37 to 39. And so God still has a great work. For the remnant of Israel. But Israel has some dark days ahead of her. Darker days than ever before. And when they heard it. They said certainly not. (laughs) This is not an option. He's not asking if they agree. Or he's not asking for a vote. (laughs) He's telling them. What exactly is going to happen? 
They saw themselves, God forbid this should happen. We are the people of God. We are the true leaders. No. Not anymore. They ascend to a great measure of light, so the judgment would be far greater to them. That's always a principle to those who much is given, much more is required. Luke chapter 12 of the servant at the end of the chapter. In verse 17 down to 19, we have the prophetic judgment to come upon them. He said, then he looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. He's quoting Psalm 118, verse 22 and 23. Peter quoted in 1 Peter 2, 7. It's part of the Hallel Psalms of Psalm 113 to 118. Like the rejected stone at the building of the temple. So Jesus was rejected, the chief cornerstone, that which ties everything together. Everything is bound by Jesus. He is the red thread from Genesis to Revelation. There's no other foundation any man can lay outside of Jesus Christ. There is no other name whereby men must be saved. Acts 4, 12. Whoever falls on this, on that stone will be broken. But on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. The quote is from Isaiah now, 8.14. The one falling on the stone to be broken refers to submission, repentance. One who agrees with Jesus about their sin, about the rebellion. He will forgive them. He will transform them. They humble themselves before God. The one on who the stone falls refers to the resistance and rejection of Jesus. And they will be crushed and destroyed in judgment. So it's much better to be broken by your own free will of submission than to have the stone fall upon you and crush you. Because of rebellion. You have Pharaoh. You have many examples in scripture. Each of us know people that um, we have known through the years who have had the great opportunity and privilege to hear the gospel. Some of them have, um, have been incredibly transformed by the Lord and, and miraculous changes come and their marriages have just turned around or or their lives, whatever it may be. And then we have seen those very same people go back into the world. Leaning to their own understanding. What greater judgment. Remember the parable of the sower. Only one seed did not penetrate. The birds of the air harpozoted suddenly, violently from the earth to the sky. The other three gave root. Those that teach that only one gave root, the one thirty, forty, sixty fold, are wrong. 
Because are you telling me that one that falls on stony ground cannot open their heart and become fruitful? And the one among thorns cannot repent and move to be fruitful? Of course they can. If you as a young lady are pregnant and you have a miscarriage after one week, were you pregnant? Was that a human being? If you carry that baby all the way through and that baby dies one day after it's born, is it any less a baby? Were you any less pregnant? Is it any less human? There's always the choice that people make. God honors our free will. God will not force you to go to heaven. God will not drag you across heaven's gates. It's a privilege. It's a choice. Nothing we can do to earn it. I'm not talking about working for it. I'm talking about abiding in Christ. Growing. Allowing Him to work. Walking in the Spirit. People love the quote. Romans 8, 1 and 2. There's no condemnation of those in Christ Jesus. And they go, finish it. We walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh. And even though that's in italics because it's not found in the beginning verses, it's down in the middle. And that's why they put it there. So go down to the middle. The condition is still there. Okay? So we are to walk in the Spirit, not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We're to keep our accounts short. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. God's hands not short that he cannot save, neither is his ear heavy that he cannot hear, but your sins to separate you from God. Psalm 66, 18 says, If you regard iniquity in your heart, God will not hear you. That includes me. You're going down the road when you get out of here and you've got your phone on, Bluetooth. And you pass through a hole. You drop your, your phone... Your phone call drops like a bad habit. That's what sin does to my communication with God. I get dropped. Till I confess and acknowledge. And I'm back in fellowship. God doesn't say, oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. He didn't say that. Hmm. And so this stone, if you think of Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7 with the image of Nebuchadnezzar that um, struck the image at the feet and it all crumbled down and it grew and it overcame the earth and that's the setting up of the kingdom by Jesus Christ. There you have the stone again, not made with hands, virgin born. In verse 19 you have the summary statement of the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he has spoken this parable against them. They were smart, to un- smart enough to understand when he was talking against them, but they were not smart enough to obey the words he taught. Because their hearts were evil. John said that Caiaphas prophesied that one should die for the people. 
because he was a high priest. <laughs> Speaking about the death of Jesus Christ. They feared the people. That's their problem. If you fear man more than God, God help you. You better fear God first. They knew he was speaking directly to them and about them. And he knew, or they knew also, that the people knew that they were the ones. (laughs) So he exposed them. Now in verse 20 to 26, you have the question about paying taxes to Caesar. And so, and now you understand why the chapter is called the Day of Questions. And so they watched them, and they sent spies who presented, um, pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and authorities of the governor. So, once again, they're, they're just looking for an opportunity because it's getting close, and they're going to end up making a deal with Judas Iscariot. You can find the parallel passages here in Matthew twenty-two fifteen through 22, and Mark um, uh, twelve thirteen through 17. And um, the plan to take Jesus um, here in verse 20. Uh, once again, they were um, subject to Rome's authority. They, they couldn't do much in their own authority. That's why they brought Jesus to Pilate. Okay? Because they were subjugated um, under them and they couldn't put anybody to death. And verse 21 to 23, you have the false flattery towards Jesus here. Then they asked him saying, Teacher, we know that you say uh, and teach rightly. And you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. And there are people that will try to work you like that. People come, they will go to churches, they will go to, oh, you're the, oh, I've never heard the gospel like that from you, boy, you, you're just too much. And, oh, man, oh, oh, no, no, you're real. Yeah. When you're up front and God is using you, you have to be careful not to believe everything you hear, good or bad. And just let it go and say, what can I do for you? You need prayer or something? You listen too long to it, you, you, you get carried away with it. There's a lot of flattery that goes on, a lot of false words that go on. If God does anything in your life, it's God who does it, not the man. You come here with an open heart. God will meet you. God will deal with you. God will instruct you. God will reprove you. God will strengthen you. Not the man. If anything, a man will only make you mad. Or deceive you. Sometimes pastors are not good pastors because they don't warn the people. They just give what they want, what the people want to hear. They don't want to be divisive. They don't want to cause trouble. They don't want to uh, shoo away the big um, tithers or something or whatever it is. And so they play politics from the pulpit. They ask him in verse 22. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, if Jesus says no, they can accuse him. If Jesus says yes, then he's an enemy um, of, of, the, of the Jews. So either way, now he's going to be turned off to the people or, or the government. 
But he perceived their craftiness, their, their, their treacherous, evil plans. And he said to them, why do you test me? Jesus kept telling them that he was sent from the Father. He kept telling them he was God. And, and they think they can get over on God. He knew what's in man. Nobody needed to tell him, John tells us. He knew everything. He says, show me a denarii, small Roman coin, whose image and inscription does it have? The image of Caesar, seated, reigning. The Jews were using that coin. How hypocritical they're using that coin and they're asking him, is it lawful to pay? So they're setting him up. So the answer said, Caesar's. And he blew them away. <laughs> he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. We live in this world with a double citizenship. Citizenship here on earth and citizenship in heaven. God is the one who has established government. Romans 13, 1-7 and 1 Peter 2, 13-17. We are to give, pay taxes to whom taxes do, tribute to whom tribute is due, honor to whom honor is due. We're to pray for our leaders that we live peaceably, Paul tells Timothy. And so we have a duty. You like the freeways? You like streetlights? You like running water in your house? Then don't complain about taxes. Now, they've over taxes, but that's the way it is. We're strangers. We're pilgrims. Okay? God gives us a means by which you can protest through voting or through petition. Do it. But the Christian should not be one who's rebellious against government. Except for one reason. When they tell you not to preach the gospel. That's the only time. And that's in the book of Acts. You judge whether we're to obey God or man about the preaching of the gospel. That's the only time we're to rebel. They want our houses, they can have them. They want to take the money we have, they can have it. But not our faith. Absolutely not. So he has silenced them on Caesar. And they were, I mean, they got taxed for everything. And the tax here was... Um, uh, regarding uh, different ages, uh, just for being a male from ages 14 to 65, and females were taxed for being 12 to 65. Um, and, you know, it's just straight across. You pay for certain things, no matter what. Kind of like Obamacare, you know? You, you know, you, um, uh, you know you, you're already done having kids, but you still got to pay for birth control and pregnancies and dental and everything else for other people. Kind of a neat deal, huh? He's thinking of us. Yes. Um, the pretentious spies here. Um, they're just treacherous. The most important thing is, he says, render to God the things that are God. We shouldn't really worry about the government. 
We as Christians, you, you should be more compliant to law than ever was. And the minute you were born again, the minute I was born again, I no longer was breaking the law. I no longer was throwing out my cigarettes out the window. I wasn't crushing my beer cans and throwing them wherever. I, I acted different now. Because God had changed my heart. But here the focus is now, am I robbing God? Malachi speaks about that. And the people are very sarcastic. But where are we robbing you? He says in tithes and offerings or whatever it is. Now, as you know, we don't make a big deal about tithing or money here. We don't touch it. When we come across the scripture, we deal with it. We don't beg. We don't pressure nothing else. But I guarantee you that as I've been a pastor for um, since 1976, you figure it out. <laughs> okay? I can tell you that when people have financial problems, it's usually people that never give anything to God. I guarantee you, the majority of the time. God is no debtor to us, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I have God in my bills. <laughs> Along with my taxes, I have the Lord. Why do I pay my taxes? I don't want to go to jail. Why do I not give to the Lord? Because He won't take me to jail? <laughs> so I fear man more than God. Now trust me, God doesn't need your money. And any minister or ministry that pressures you for money, get up and walk out. But we are responsible to teach what the Bible speaks about our giving to God. That's between you and God. I never see your offerings. I don't see what you give. I don't want to know. It's none of my business. But here Jesus. Interesting answer. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. Straight across. But they could not catch him in his words. In the presence of the people. And they marvel at his answer. And kept silent. They couldn't catch him. They're astounded. But. They keep silent. But they don't repent. They don't obey. 27 down to 40. And we touched it in depth this morning, so I'm not going to belabor it. The question about um, marriage in view of the resurrection. Then some of the Sadducees who deny that there's a resurrection came to him and asked him. Remember, they're the ones that run the, the, the temple. They're the materialists, the wealthy. They're the liberals. Okay? And every, any church that's wealthy... Is usually with people that are real educated and they are really an offense to the scriptures because they start watering down the word of God. They don't believe in the inspiration of scripture. They don't believe it's infallible and errant. They take liberal views. They become very um, worldly in their interpretation. And uh, if you look at the major seminaries, uh, uh, Fuller uh, and many of the... Uh, Christian colleges, they're very liberal today. Very, very liberal. Now, they came to him asking, because they didn't believe in the resurrection, um, they, um, they didn't believe in, in angels, 
They didn't believe in spirits. Um, we are told um, when Paul was being um, um, brought before the Sanhedrin there in Acts 23, he exposed them and divided the council, seeing that some were Pharisees and some were Sadducees, and the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, the Sadducees didn't. And he uh, says, I'm being judged for the resurrection of the dead. And he just split them apart. Uh, big commotion in that. But here they say, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. So this is the leveret uh, marriage in, in Deuteronomy 25.5. Now remember, they only believed in the first five books, so they're quoting Deuteronomy. Okay, They didn't believe in the rest of the prophets in that, just the first five books of Moses. So th- this is where they're getting their text. And uh, this was a provision for for um, a relative who died without having a child, that if he died without that, then his brother would take up um, the, the, the responsibility of marrying his widow, and the first son to be born would take the name as well as the genuine son of the deceased, so that his lineage and his name would carry on. And this was provided in there. And now uh, we have the book of uh, uh, Ruth with Boaz, as he did with uh, Ruth. But way before that, we find that even before the law was given, I didn't mention it um, this morning, but um, you have in chapter 38 of Genesis, two gentlemen named by Ur and Onan. And, uh, and, and, and the first uh, took a wife, and he was evil, so God slew him. And the second brother... Uh, took up this responsibility, but rather than following through, um, he didn't allow her to get pregnant, and then God slew him. So you have the same case there even before the law was given. And those are the other two cases, and the only ones that are found in Scripture. And so um, it's, it's interesting here they bring this up. And so they give this uh, hypothetical story because there's no way it could be true, trying to set Jesus up. Now, there were seven brothers, and the first took the wife and died without children. And the second took her as wife, and he died childless. And then the third took her, and in like manner, the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Uh, You'd be a little concerned here as a family after all, all that kind of death. Finally, she's gone, and therefore, here's the question. In the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. They think they have Jesus. As I said this morning, you're going to cut her up in seven pieces? Who's going to get her? So this was their, their proof that there's no resurrection because she can't be wife to all seven in heaven. Rationale, human logic. Wrong, absolutely. When your logic, your reason contradicts the word of God, guess who's wrong? Not the scriptures. Jesus answers and says to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. In other words, here while we're here in this earth, marriage is a God-given institution for the whole world, believer and non-believer. That a man and a woman come together and they repopulate, fill the earth. Continue the human race. Provide healthy homes, safe homes for children to be raised with an example of one mother, one father, not two daddies, not two mommies. Okay? So they can feel safe and protected. A decent and orderly society. But those who are counted worthy 
to attain that age. In other words, those who are born again and die save and they go to heaven. They're kind of worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. So marriage will not exist in heaven. Now, some people get bummed out about that. Well, don't get bummed out. It's going to be better. Now, some people are glad and they think it is going to be better. But, you know, for the most part, you know, Christians have a good marriage. You know, if, if you're carnal, then you're going to have a bad marriage. Maybe even worse than a non-believer's marriage. You know what I mean? It takes a lot of dying to self. But he's saying um, those who are raised, they, they're, heaven doesn't need to be repopulated through sexual uh, intercourse to replicate it. It's populated by being supernaturally born again. And so we've passed from this temporal world, this material world, to the eternal world with the Lord in heaven. And so they are uh, neither married nor given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. He nails them again with the resurrection. Okay? They're just like the angels. Not, they don't become angels. They're like the angels. What's the context? They don't marry. They're spirit beings. Our body goes to the grave. It will be raised, glorified at the rapture. But the minute you die, you're instantly present. Second Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. Okay? So here he points to them. Marriage is God-ordained for this world, for believer and non-believer, for a decent, orderly civilization, for protecting the children. And that they have a visual example of what is a family. What is a marriage. What God intended. But even Moses showed. So, because they only believed the Pentateuch. Now he quotes uh, from Exodus here. In verse um, 36. And chapter uh, 3. Verse 1 on down to 6. He quotes there. And and he proves from Moses that Moses believed in the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, the Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live with him. So in other words, uh, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were alive. They weren't dead. Okay? So how can... How can you refute the resurrection? Moses wrote about the resurrection. They're alive. They're living with him. And in 39, then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. Well, because they thought they were going to knock off Jesus and at the same time knock off the Pharisees' belief in the resurrection. In fact, because Jesus just put them down and exposed their, their, their false teaching, now the Pharisees don't have to worry about it. And so he's done a service to them indirectly. But after that, they dare not question him anymore. And so Jesus, one by one, he silenced these people. And they just cannot, um, they, they just don't get it. They, um, over and over again, they, they think they can thwart him. In Verse 40, 41, down to 44, you have the question now that Jesus poses to the Sadducees. So he reverses it. And then he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? 
Now, David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is it he then is his son? Question mark. Now, in verse 41 here to 44, the cross-references are in Matthew 22, 41 to 46, and Mark 12, 35 and 36. The question pointed out the seeming contradiction in verse 41. Jesus asked how it was possible that people could say that Christ is the son of David. The word Christ refers to the anointed, the Messiah, that was to come. The clarification is by David in 42 and 43. Jesus is quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. The quote is a declaration of God, the Father, to His Son, Jesus Christ. The title Lord, all capital letters, L-O-R-D, whenever you see that in the New King James or Old King James, is the title Yahweh, referring to the Father. In Lord, capital L, small O, small R, small D, is kurios in the Greek, the Son, equivalent to the Hebrew, the Hebrew, Adonai. David is prophesying the promise of God the Father to the Son, Jesus, that he would subjugate all of his enemies at the second coming. The phrase, sit at my right hand, occupies the time from the ascension of Jesus back to the Father to take his place at his right hand till he returns in the second coming to destroy the armies of the world and set up the kingdom. That's what he's talking about. Matthew twenty-two forty-four, Hebrews one thirteen speaks about sitting at the right hand of the Father, the place of privilege and authority. And so, um, when David says, the Lord said to my Lord, the Father said to the Son, who was the Lord of David. So in other words, in verse 44, therefore David called him Lord, how is it he then his son? David is not talking a literal son, but son through the lineage of, the phrase, my Lord, refers to David as the Messiah being his Savior. The Father said to my Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the psalm says. No Hebrew father would ever call his son Lord, for he had authority until death over his son. But he calls him Lord as being his Savior. Now Jesus, having thrown this curb at them <laughs> that they couldn't answer, in 45 to 47, he warns the disciples about these scribes. Then, in the hearing of all the people, the Sanhedrin still there, the elders, the chief priests, all these guys, and the people, he said to his disciples, directly to them, 
Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes. Love greetings in the marketplaces. The best seats in the synagogues. And the best places at feasts. Jesus picks this up more in depth in Matthew 23, 1 through 36. The woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. Who love to have the attention of people and to pass themselves off as more spiritual than they are. To be revered. To be called rabbi. Who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers on the street corners. As that Pharisee in the temple, Father, I thank you. I'm not like other men, like this sinner. Hmm. Pretense to devour widows' houses. I remember Pastor Chuck when I first came to the Lord in 73. um, I never attended a Sunday morning. I never had time. I just became a Christian was involved in ministry. (laughs) I never went to a midweek service. I never went to a Sunday night. I would go sometimes to Romaine's uh, study in the morning on on, um, Wednesday morning, I believe it was. But... I went through his whole library, 10 chapters at a time, that he went through on Sunday night. And Chuck constantly exposed the people who rip off widows. These pastors that beg and beg and beg and they drive these fancy cars and they have these elaborate homes and everything else. And they wear $300 pants and thousand dollar suits he would expose them he would mock them he would warn people about them sadly that is not the case anymore in Calvary chapels in fact some of them are the same God help us God help us that we would become like these men. Bad enough we have to deal with our sin and give account for our sin. But you don't mess with God's people. You don't mess with God's money. And you certainly don't mess with God's women. God help people that are in authority that do so. God will not put up with it. If he doesn't get you here, he's going to get you there. But be sure that he's going to get you. Nobody gets away with that. These guys have forgotten what they've been teaching for years. They will receive greater condemnation. Well. They're in the backdrop. Jesus just pronounced judgment on them. He just warned his disciples. If he warned his disciples, that means they had the potential and capacity to do the same thing. Are we clear on that? When Jesus said, one of you will betray me this night, 
every one of them said, Is it I? What do you do with that, Calvinist? <laughs> God decreed that Judas Iscariot betray Jesus, so he had no choice. Then how, God, how is God going to judge Judas Iscariot if God forced him to betray him? How can he be good? How can he be just? How can he be holy? The betrayal had to be by free will. God just declared what was going to happen before it happened, so you know he's God. But he never forces people to do the evil. He only tells you the people that will do the evil. It's real simple. You've got one of two choices for the evil. Either God does it or man does it. I'll choose for man. <laughs> Every time. If there was no potential in his disciples, he wouldn't have to warn them. If you're a parent, you warn your children. You know why? Because they're just like you, sinners. And they have the potential. End of argument. <laughs> Real simple. May God give us wisdom to walk with Him. Father, thank you for your goodness and your love. Thank you for tonight. And Lord, we just uh, pray that you continue to keep us on the straight and narrow. We just ask for forgiveness and we just, Lord, pray that we yield to your spirit and that you would continue working in us and through us, Lord, and that your will would be done and you would continue to use Calvary Chapel, Pasadena to draw people to be saved, to be growing in your love and your grace. And the Lord, you would use us to reach out to many as the day becomes darker. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the internet. Right where you sit, you can accept Him. You're believing that Christ is God who became man, who died for your sins and rose from the dead, having made payment for all of your sins. And if you agree with that, you can call upon Him. And He will save you, give you a new heart, and transform your life. And so this is your prayer to the Lord if you want to be born again. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.